does higher education move rapidly into that position where they view their opportunity as not just conferring degrees, but providing education and training of all sorts. Welcome to Reboot Higher Ed. I'm your host, Paul Bolton. On today's show, I'm being joined by Brandon Busteed. And Brandon is the president of University Partners and Global Head Learn, Work, Innovation for Kaplan North America. Brandon Busteed oversees Kaplan's higher education partnerships in North America, leveraging its global educational assets, ranging from recruiting and housing international students and assessing outcomes to enabling distance education via online learning and university hosting programs to provide institutions help in expanding access and their scope of services and meeting the changing needs of their students and the workplace. Busteed's 20-year career has been largely focused on the education arena. Before joining Kaplan, he was a senior partner and global head, public sector at Gallup, overseeing its higher education, government, foundation, and corporate social impact segments. While at Gallup, he led dozens of groundbreaking studies, such as the Gallup-Purdue Index, a long-term study of college graduates' work and life outcomes, and the Strata Gallup Education Consumer Survey, the largest representative study of U.S. adults in education consumers' education pathways and experiences. Prior to Gallup, Brandon was the founder and, and the former CEO of Outside the Classroom, a company that pioneered adaptive online education to change risky student behaviors. He is a prolific writer and a sought-after speaker about innovation and trends in education and workforce development. Busteed's articles have appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, Fast Company, and other publications. Brandon is a graduate of Duke University where he studied public policy. He is a trustee emeritus of Duke and also served on the board of visitors for the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Brandon, you have certainly had an amazing pathway to your current role at Kaplan North America. Uh, please share uh, with the listeners a little bit more in depth uh, of, of that pathway and how you arrived at this current point. It's a very um, interesting uh, piece of every interview I do to learn a little bit more about uh, those subject matter experts uh, that are on Reboot Higher Ed. So uh, please share. Yeah, happy to, Paul. I'm, I'm certainly in the category of folks who couldn't have foreseen the, the kind of career that I've had uh, if I'd thought about it in college and somebody would asked me, you know, what do I want to do or who do I want to be? Uh, I mean, I certainly feel like I've been involved in uh, incredible work my my whole career, work that I've certainly been uh, very you know mission driven uh, and and passionate about and um, so for that I'm grateful but you know it, it stems back to things I got involved with quite frankly as a student leader when I was an undergraduate in college and had had come into college viewing it as an incredible opportunity as a, an amazing gift. Um, you know, my uh, my family, my, my dad was the first one uh, to get a college degree on his side. I was the first one on my mom's side. So I, you know, I wasn't a first gen student, but came from a family that just really, really believed deeply in the value of higher education. And when I got there, you know, it was it was something that I knew I had to take advantage of and make the most of. And so I've, you know, I've always treated it through that lens. And I think in my career and working in and around higher ed, I continue to believe that higher ed is is our country's greatest asset. That said, uh, it doesn't always mean that I feel like we've maximized it. And there's uh, there's a lot of examples of where I think there's a lot of room for improvement in how higher education is performing, 
how it's serving students, how it's, uh, you know, part of the broader ecosystem of talent development in the world. So, uh, so although I love it and, and come at a place of, uh, of deep caring and, uh, and, and nurturing of it, I, I'm also, uh, one of the first to be critical of where I think we need to improve. So, you know, the, 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 the synthesis of my career is that I've always been involved in education. Uh, it's been from a number of different angles as a, as the founder and CEO of, a, of an ed tech company long before you called it ed tech uh, organization. I founded right out of college in 2000. And um, we were involved in online courses around things like alcohol abuse prevention, sexual assault prevention, obviously really big, important issues in higher ed. And then, you know, I had an incredible run at Gallup leading the education and workforce development work there. Um, and now in the last year and a half, I've been at Kaplan. And so, you know, those have all been you know, different roles in kind, but uh, but across that have always been mission-driven organizations, educational-focused organizations, and uh, and opportunities for me to to work with uh, hundreds and and now at this point in my career, uh, well over a thousand different colleges and universities in some capacity. So you've had a lot of experience working with those colleges and universities, and you said that you know right now. Uh, are, are, is it a time that are, are we fully maximizing uh, the role that um, higher education institutions can can take? And this is this is a time with many disruptions that we're you know that we're going through right now, in a time where many university leaders are faced with unknowns uh, and almost forced to pivot. Um, a lot of this has been going on though, as far as disruptions in higher education. I know we have a, a pandemic we're going through right now, but there has been also a need uh, for some change. Um, and that 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 obviously uh, is going to come to light, uh, especially in times that we're in. So I, I'd like to talk about the disruption um, on the horizon under the higher education model. Uh, pandemic aside, just just the model itself and some areas that you see that we're not maximizing that we definitely need to start taking steps towards. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the things that that were of concern pre COVID nineteen disruption that right. are going to be consistent and and now I think amplified. You know, you you say what are Americans most concerned about as it relates to higher education? And there's two really straightforward answers there. One is an obvious one that most people understand, which is the cost. You know, the rising cost of tuition has gone up roughly four hundred percent since nineteen eighty. Uh, well above the, you know, inflationary index, twice the rise in cost compared to healthcare. So no matter what you benchmark it against, right, it's been an, it's been a really, really astronomical rise in tuition prices. So the overall price tag is of concern. And then coupled with that, the biggest critique of higher education, aside from people's concerns about the cost, is one about the work relevance of, of higher ed, right? Where, no matter what group we, we surveyed and the projects I was involved with when I was at Gallup, uh, there was essentially a vote of no confidence in the work readiness of college graduates, whether you surveyed the American public, uh, C-level executives and, and organizations, uh, even trustees of colleges and universities, right? There is this belief that college graduates are not well prepared for success in the workplace. And the problem with that critique is that it's, the, it's, it's essentially the juxtaposition of why Americans value higher ed the most, which is by far and away the number one reason to get a good or better job. So it's not the only reason why we value it, but it's by far the number one reason. And so you take the number one reason why we value it and then say, well, how are we doing on that? And you know, pretty much every constituent that matters to higher ed goes, yeah, not so well. 
we've got really two fundamental issues there. We've got a rising cost issue and we've got a value proposition issue very specific to the work readiness of grads. So that was all a, you know, a tornado uh, headed in our direction long before COVID-19. And, and now, right, with the, the disruption we're facing uh, as, in terms of a global pandemic with no certainty in terms of when it will abate and, and, and in what fashion, those two things are, are paramount, right? You've got basically 2% of the U.S. workforce filed for unemployment in the last couple of weeks. Those numbers are going to rise dramatically in the weeks to come. So you've got a lot of people who were struggling to afford college before now really can't afford it. And then for the ones who can afford it, right, they're going to be putting an even sharper pencil to their evaluation of, am I going to get the most out of this, right? And so there are all kinds of implications for that. But I think in short, you know, this gets to a place where higher ed leaders are going to have to do a lot of things that they've been unwilling to do in the past. Uh, they're going to have to admit uh, certain shortfallings that they haven't been willing to admit, like maybe we're not doing as good a job on work readiness as we could. And they're going to have to make, I hate to say it, really tough, unpopular decisions that now we just don't have any choice, right? Cost reductions, uh, layoffs, right? Salary reductions. I mean, elimination of programs, uh, thinking about shared services opportunities with other universities. I mean, anything and everything is going to be on the table now because that's essentially how dire the current situation is. Definitely. And I think that there's going to be... Uh... Um, and you you brought this up in just our uh, meeting before you know our pre conference, and that is so. There's just some things that are on the table that you uh, have talked about in meetings. You you've discussed them, but and, and you provided data at that point. Probably, I'm, I'm sure many of you all are sitting there going, "Yeah, we presented this in the past, and it never had any legs." And now now is now is definitely the time where it, it does need legs and needs to kind of dust off that file and and and. And over your Zoom or go to meetings, uh, wherever you're working at now, is, is definitely time to kind of reassess those things. Because no matter what, there is going to be people going to school and we need to still be prepared to educate the workforce, educate students leaving high school, um, going into college. That's right. um, you know, we have to we still have to be ready because there is going to be that time where it switches on and everyone's going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is everybody ready? And, you know, no paralysis at right. this point, I think, is just going to it's just potentially could hurt many universities that could actually serve some really good. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of layers to it and you know, the, the, the need for high quality education and high quality education and training that helps people get, for example, into new jobs that they weren't trained for before because that job was eliminated. Right. I mean, all, all that is accelerated. So you could argue the demand for, for quality education and training is going to be even higher in the midst of this crisis. And you say, okay, well, let's just think about for, for, for what kinds of education and training. There's going to be enormous need for short-term upskilling and reskilling. There certainly is still going to be need for full degree educated uh, workforce, you know, bachelor's degree, master's degree, associate degree. But there is going to be an explosion of demand in shorter term uh, upskilling and reskilling opportunities, industry recognized credentials. I mean, all. And so the question becomes, right? Does higher education move rapidly into that position where they view their opportunity as not just conferring degrees, but providing education and training of all sorts? Now, of course, community colleges and certain institutions with continuing and professional ed divisions are already involved in this type of stuff. But this is not a whole, you know, wholesale, you know, full system type view of, of what most higher ed institutions are doing. So the good news is 
lots of demand for, for high quality education, but it's going to be coming at how can I do it faster? How can I do it less expensively, right? How can I get people more directly between point A and point B where they are now and what their goal is? Those are things that are just going to have to operate on an extremely customer-centric and market-facing type of responsiveness, which is also something that, you know, traditionally higher education has not been known for. So, look, as much as there will be some pain and suffering that's experienced at an institutional level, an individual level through this, there's also on the flip side a, a lot of room to believe that there will be an explosion of innovation across higher education, right? in terms of how institutions operate, partnerships they might consider, um, and cultural norms or sacred cows that are going to come, uh, you know, uh, out into an obvious place where people go, why have we always done that? Oh, because it's just a sacred cow? Like, what's really so sacred about it? So, so you know, you just take the cultural norms, for example, in different countries around the world about online education. You know, online education is more accepted in the U.S. than it is in most other countries, even though it's still uh, at a place in the U.S. where most people think of traditional education as, as better than online education. In other countries, right, it's just not culturally acceptable to do online education. Well, now the whole world, you know, 1.4 billion students was one of the estimates I saw last week, are now online. Obviously, Crazy. most of them are online in a way that was totally haphazard, right? So you know, don't don't judge that book by its cover of the immediate responsiveness of, you know, taking uh, on short notice two or three days time and cramming everything online. Uh, but that said, you know, the cultural acceptance of online education is going to be much more widespread, not just in the U.S., but around the globe, because it's our best option, right? If your choice is to have no education at all versus, you know, opening up campus, the the alternative there is unacceptable, right? So, so online education is most certainly going to come into an entirely new framework and paradigm in terms of how it's thought of. That said, what's also going to be clear is that people will start to experience in larger numbers the differences between poorly done online education and world-class, well-crafted education because we know there's big variance across those. So now the standards, I think, are going to get higher and higher because you're going to have, relatively speaking, more people exposed to both the good and the bad. And consumers are going to start to orient around that. They'll be like, oh, well, it sounds like your program was amazing. Why was it so amazing? Mine was horrible. Like, what was the difference, right? That's the kind of thing that's going to happen across the globe, not just in the U.S. Yeah, I, you've said something that is real, something that I've been thinking about as well. And that is that, so right now there are courses at many universities and we've seen the, you know, the, the press out there uh, sharing these, like, especially locally and uh, the towns that you're in said university is going online for the rest of the semester. And obviously right then and there, that is a, there's probably some courses that were never online that are now online. And I, I and I guarantee you there's probably some students out there. They're going, this, this will do. But I think the expectation of what a student experience online will be with specific schools uh, is going to continue to rise as, as more start going to the online space. It's more like, you know, I'm thinking, uh, Brandon, it's like, you know, you have students now that will compare like, hey, so what what amenities are involved at your university? And, you know, kind of compare right. and contrast, right? Well, now it's going to be like, what's the online experience like? You know, what's the feedback yep. from instruction? And then um, also, how, how fast are you going from point A to point B? Why is mine taking so much longer? And this, you know, my friend over here is going to going to school and, you know, this school that's based out of, 
you know, whatever state. Um, and, and they, they have the same degree and they're, they're able to progress faster, you know, cause it's about the right. outcomes, right? It's not so much, you're not, you are not toting the whole, uh, move on campus and live for four years. You are, Hey, we can get you in these types of careers, um, or jobs with these credentials. And I think that's going to, that's a game changer for those that can do it right. It's going to be a game changer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, and, and, you know, the, the, the experiment we've been in of moving classes online in a matter of days all across the world, right? Like we, we should recognize how impressive that feat in and of itself is. Definitely. Right. And, and so it doesn't, you know, my comments about, you know, building something from the beginning that's a digitally native course, right, where you professionally designed it to be an online course, I think it's fair to say it's very different than, hey, I'm, in, I'm midstream in a traditional course and I'm going to find a way to make it work, you know, given the face of this disruption. I mean, the, the, the work that's been done to make it work in a pinch has been remarkable. But to right. your point, right, we are going to quickly move from the speed at which we kind of got able to respond to COVID-19 crisis to people going, okay, that was great to finish off this semester, but this isn't going to be the acceptable standard for the fall if we should continue to have this kind of disruption in the fall. Or the next time there's a disruption, whether it's a, you know, a fire uh, that, you know, is, is raging out of control, threatening campuses in California, or it's a, another outbreak of COVID-19, whatever it is, right, regardless of the disruption, the next time it happens, it's going to be much less acceptable to be crashing the decks and just kind of doing it in an ad hoc fashion. And, and you're right, you know, consumers are quickly experiencing different versions of high quality and low quality, and they're sharing it all over the place. I mean, I have a third and fourth grader, and I can tell you, you know, the number of parents who are like, wait, what's your school doing? Oh, my gosh. Like, well, that's amazing. We're just printing out worksheets here on our home printer, yeah. right? Like, that's my Everyone's kids' comparing. version of distance education. So, yeah. uh, so in any event, you know, you're, you're already seeing great innovation. You're seeing individual faculty members come up with incredible ideas, uh, you know, students who are coming up with, you know, different ideas of, of this. And, I, you know, just last week, I, I taught a class that I was scheduled to teach in person with my mentor. He's 86 years old. He's still teaching at Duke University. And instead, we did a Zoom call with his whole class. And I got to tell you, you know, at least in that, which was supposed to be a discussion and a talk and, you know, back and forth, like there was there was no difference in the quality of our conversation between if I had been on campus there in person versus the Zoom call we had. And, you know, and, and you go, well, you know, here's here's an 86 year old professor who logged in from his home, ran the Zoom session from there. You know, he was he was able to do it. And, and we had a, a super high quality discussion. So, you know, there, there's some courses that uh, are much more challenging to reformat into online. But uh, but, you know, look, you know, there, there is going to be a real renaissance and in innovation, not just in online, that I think will extend back into classroom education when and if we get back to that in various forms, uh, where some of the things that we've thought of in just terms of being more innovative and in how we teach and learn, I actually think they're going to be benefits to regular classroom education on that front as well. Definitely. I'd like to pivot and talk to you a little bit about now what are some things that you know right now that we're not doing that we need to begin doing and it probably i'm guessing also might involve people outside of the university that are in the workforce development or at the businesses that uh maybe should be involved in those conversations well it's not that we aren't doing some of the things that are most efficacious when it comes to the work readiness of graduates it's that we're we're barely bringing them to scale and we haven't put a real emphasis of importance and criticality around them right so 
you go back to the studies I was involved with at Gallup and the Gallup-Purdue Index, you know, largest representative study of college graduates looking at their long-term outcomes. You look at the things that those graduates uh, experienced during college that doubled their odds of being engaged in their work later in their life or thriving in their well-being. And it was just a small handful of things, Paul, right, which included having a job or an internship during college where they were able to apply what they were learning in the classroom, working on a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete. Those things are, are being done in various forms at most college universities. The problem is they're only happening for a very small percentage of students. And in most cases, it's literally accidental as opposed to something that was designed, like pedagogically built into the program, a requirement of graduation, whatever it might be. So when you start to unpack those pieces, right, the steps forward are incredibly clear. It's a matter of, do we have the willpower to say, for example, if I was a college president, I would be now making it mandatory that every student has some sort of an internship or a co-op as part of graduation, right? And I would make sure that any work experience, whether it was a paid job, you know, uh, you know, an opportunity to do a summer internship, even unpaid, would be linked thoughtfully into the curriculum in some place or another. And then, you know, you think about other low-hanging fruit, some of the big projects that I'm working on with the universities now at Kaplan are helping them launch what we call credigree initiatives. Credigree is just the blend of the words credential and degree. And the vision is really straightforward that students graduate with both a bachelor's degree and a highly valued industry recognized credential. Why does it have to be an either or world? It can be a both and. So some course of the time over the bachelor's degree experience, right? Summers, J terms, et cetera. You can weave in opportunities for students to pursue an industry recognized credential. And now you have situations where, and this was an example I used in market research, you have a, an English graduate who also is a certified ethical hacker, one of the official designations in cybersecurity. Here's the interesting point about that. When you ask Americans to envision themselves as a hiring manager, they know nothing else about the candidates in front of them. Which of, the, of these three candidates would they pick? Here were the options. The first was a graduate with a bachelor's degree in English. The second one was a graduate with a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. And the third was the example I just gave you, a graduate with a bachelor's degree in English and a certified ethical hacker designation in cybersecurity. Americans would choose that, that third one four times more likely than the previous two. And what's interesting is that English major is still an English major. The difference is they've got an industry-recognized credential attached to it. So the idea of this is really straightforward, right? It's, right. it's why not leave with both a bachelor's degree and a credential that's another example where you can dramatically scale and increase the work readiness of college graduates and especially make them a lot more attractive to employers in the marketplace. Is there, is there, cause I, I want the listeners to hear like, there's some things that I think that we all hear uh, at different campuses or just in the different um, uh, spaces that we're in that are, uh, there are real barriers and then there's some artificial barriers. And, and I, I want to know if, if, if you have any examples of that that you can maybe provide that uh, so listeners can start to work through some of those possibly. Yeah, look, I mean, people always ask me the question, like, what kinds of universities do you work with or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, usually somebody answers that question with something like, oh, large publics or small privates, or I work with yeah. liberal arts institutions, or, you know, there's some institutional typology answer to that. Okay. My, my answer has nothing to do with those things, right? There are certainly, you know, like 
higher rank, lower rank, right? All those different ways that we think of kind of ranking or rating or categorizing institutions. My, my thesis has nothing to do with any of those things. It is very simply about whether there's a visionary leader at the helm of that institution and the degree to which that leader wants to adapt and grow and that they have alignment, not with everybody, but largely alignment with their leadership team, meaning their board of trustees and their cabinet, right? So, right. so if you say, what are the institutions that I'm working with? It's simply that, right? Is there a visionary leader at the helm? Does he or she want to uh, adapt and grow in innovative ways, right? And do they have real support and alignment from the senior leadership in that organization to go forth and do that? If, if, if that is what I see, that's an institution that I'm eager to work with, right? But, but you know, you put aside, right? Take an example of, you know, most organizations would say, oh, if it's a highly ranked institution and really prestigious and, you know, boy, we'd love to put that, you know, brand name on our customer list or whatever, that would be their reason for wanting to work with, you know, prestigious University X. That has nothing to do with my analysis. So in other words, I think there's going to be big winners uh, at institutions that most people have never heard of because they've got dynamic leadership in place. I think you're going to see big losers, quite frankly, among some very elite institutions who are going to just are, are going to insist on doing business as usual. And even if they're in a strong financial position and even if they could fill all the seats in their class with full paying students, the question is, do they want to? Is that serving their mission? Is that serving the purpose of higher education? And I think that's going to start to to weigh on some of those uh, elite institutions who may be less willing to think in innovative ways. So I, so the answer is, you know, I'm, you know, life is short, time is precious. You know, I'm, I'm trying to maximize my time with the dynamic leaders who uh, are thinking in very new and innovative ways. No, and, and those are some, those are some great points. And uh, I really like what you said about, you know, university aside, whether it's big or small, it's, it, it really is like who, who is at the helm and what kind of visions do they have? like it's time to throw old ways out and that dynamic leadership is going to be key, which is, is great too, because I, I think it puts a lot of schools. They don't think of themselves of this way. Now they could in the future. You're on an equal playing field right now, if you take the opportunity, but I think also outside of university leaderships, because I know many listeners on this podcast too, are kind of in that mid level is, um, is an opportunity to lead up as well because some of those ideas never made it to the boardroom right and you That's have exactly them. right and now's the time to i mean why not you're right why not just risk a hey just a quick email <laughs> to you know right. you know obviously loop your boss in <laughs> you know but these are times where hey i'm thinking about this i'm on the front lines and um i've been in interactions with you know many students or possible people looking to go back to work um and and this is an opportunity. Um, you know, are are we interested in this? Um, what's the worst that can happen? Someone says no. If they say no, though, I think it also lets you know that you know there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but it doesn't mean not forever. It just means maybe another angle needs to be taken or find some champion somewhere on the campus, uh, virtual campus or brick and mortar to to to, to assist you with this. You know, I think it's uh, we can all grow uh, in this time outside, Brandon. Outside, let's say this never even happened. We should be. These are conversations for hey, it's summer. <laughs> let's let's pivot, you know. So, anyway, right. it's just something. To, so, right now, um, uh, before we wrap up, what what are some next steps? Um, 
those that are, that are ready to begin this conversation uh, could have, sh- what are some next steps for those uh, individuals or, or universities or teams that could be listening that maybe uh, want to, you know, engage uh, into some next steps uh, to pursue some opportunities like these? Well, I mean, look, my, my general encouragement is consistent with, with all the comments I've made in our, in our chat today. You know, this is a time where you can use a lot of expressions, you know, it's time to take the gloves off, right? It's time to think outside the box. It's, you know, like, I think all, you know, it's time to kill some sacred cows, right? I mean, like right. all those things apply in different ways here. You know, we, um, I think leaders in higher education have restricted their thinking because of norms and supposed standards and like some of these things matter more right like so obviously accreditation is not something that i would call a sacred cow but even if you're sitting in an accreditor seat right now or you're at the department of education you're reconsidering a whole bunch of stuff right now and i would be shocked if there weren't several new issuances and guidance around accreditation issuances from the department of education about allowances for a number of different new innovative models like i would be shocked right to, to not see uh, a lot of that activity, but I think more so, you know, outside the things that are actual, you know, kind of guidelines that we have to adhere to right now under standards and certain things that are set. We've just, we've got a lot of sacred cows out there. We've got a lot of cultural norms that we've just assumed to be true and haven't really pushed back on, or we've had an idea in the back of our minds for a number of years, but have been like, yeah, but, uh, you know, I don't think so-and-so would be supportive of that, you know, whether that's faculty resistance or whatever, you know, whatever, uh, stakeholder might be resistant to the idea, you know, now is the time where I don't think we can be bashful about the ideas that we think are important for either saving costs, right, coming up with efficiencies in our operations, thinking about how we could actually operate better. So although we're going to be in an environment with constrained resources, it doesn't mean that quality has to suffer. In fact, in some cases, quality could go up because we have to focus on the absolute core of what matters most to the college experience, right? And now that's when you start to go, okay, well, what's fluff and what's core? And I got, I got to be honest with you, from a lot of the research I did at Gallup, I got a long list of stuff that I'd put in that fluff category. The biggest right. challenge is figuring out what's core. And there's actually a lot of institutions that, that could afford to do some sharpened thinking around that because they haven't even been forced to do that until, you know, an event like this that might actually be a, an existential crisis for some. So Again, I come at this with a with an optimistic view in the grand scheme of things. It's not that it's going to be easy. It's going to be very, very challenging times. There will be universities that shut down. There will be universities that you know are uh, you know are going to be in a position where they're close to shuttering. Going to have to make some dramatic moves. But in the midst of all this, you know, there's just incredible uh, opportunity for innovation, ways to rethink the the overall uh, mission of higher ed to say. Why couldn't we serve anybody in terms of educational needs, right? Does it always have to be in the form of a degree? Uh, does it always have to be in the form of somebody physically visiting our campus? I mean, there's just a whole bunch of different ways to rethink this. And of course, none of these things I mentioned are brand new. You know, there's, no. there's an institution out there somewhere that's done some form of it. I think what we're going to say, what we're going to see though is more wholesale innovation, more wholesale scaling of some of these things. So back to your work readiness question. It's not that people haven't been doing things like internships or co-ops or, you know, work projects. It's just we've been doing it in very small pockets. And so the big shift is going to be it's just it's going to be part of what it means to go to college. That you've given us a lot to to think about. Any parting words before we we sign off here? You just given us some great ones. But any any extras? (laughs) 
No, that, well, there's an expression that I've lived by since I wrote it down in my college yearbook, and it's it's very simply fortune to the bold, and I think that that uh, that probably applies more than anything right now. So that's my uh, my my parting wisdom is is the expression I've lived by for the last 25 years: the fortune to the bold. Well, thank you, Brandon, and uh, I appreciate your time uh, and and willingness to to come on the show, and uh, and, and you've shared a lot of uh, nuggets that I hope uh, our listeners can take away. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you too, Paul. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. All right. And thank you uh, all for tuning in to Reboot Higher Ed. Make sure you subscribe so you're notified when a new episode airs on whatever platform you get your podcast on. Thanks for tuning in and have a great rest of your day.